0: Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. My name is Jasper Mutsarts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With this podcast, I thrive to inspire people to live their quest. Soul Kitchen is a place where we gather and share stories that empower us to move through emotional healing and work on our personal growth to contribute to a better world. With Soul Kitchen, I'm interviewing people that excite me, and once in a while, I will also share my own experiences and reflections. Each episode provides you with a recipe so you can live your quest. What is your quest? So welcome, friends, to the Soul Kitchen. Welcome to this new episode and thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Today I'm talking to Ben Jones, a hippie-turned-entrepreneur, founder of a Bitcoin bank. He raised $50 million in venture capital and he has now turned into a founder coach He's also traveling the world. He wants to visit each country in the world. And he loves to learn new skills, such as coding and learning languages. And I'm sitting with him in Portugal, where we are attending a breathwork co-living.
1: Hello, Ben. How are you today? Hello, Jasper. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I listened to one episode before with Harry, uh, the founder of, of The Breath work co living where we're currently at and I really enjoyed it so it's an honor to, to make it onto onto the podcast. And what brought you to the breathwork co-living? Honestly I found it through a friend and as soon as I saw it I just got incredibly excited. Um, w- number one was the community so I'd been traveling a lot and uh, just moving places very often and I thought the idea of being in one place for one month with the same people Hopefully, awesome people that turned out to be true uh, would be just absolutely what I needed. I also uh, had got into breath work previously, starting up with some Wim Hof stuff. So for me, it was this awesome combination of of people plus practice, uh, and yeah, it's been fantastic.
0: And what topics uh, came up for you during your breath work this uh, during this call live?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I. I think for me, the biggest topic that has come up is the question of um, of balance between traveling fast and seeing lots of places and traveling slow and getting integrated into a place and a community. Because it felt just so good to slow down here. Um, that was one topic. Uh, other topics were um, meeting people who are also trying to find balance. Um, so I, I really struggle with the terminology because I think when we start saying words like spiritual or conscious, it can sound pretentious really quickly. Uh, but um, people who, I guess, are living lives in the more deliberate way um, and figuring out how to balance uh, a job with a lifestyle with some kind of a practice or self-growth. Um, and it's just been incredible meeting people at like you and meeting other people who are on that journey and just uh, mining them the learnings, you know. So you're looking for balance
0: and in the past you've been a startup founder where obviously it was difficult to maintain balance. Can you share a bit more about that experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you introduced me as a, as a hippie turned uh, entrepreneur and perhaps uh, the full story is hippie turned entrepreneur and now I'm heading slowly back towards hippie, but I'm not going <laughs> to go uh, all of the way. So I, I started off, uh, I, I did everything, you know, the normal way I went to school then I went to university after university I was lucky enough to take a gap year uh, where we traveled around South America for a year and uh, that was the, the deep hippie phase so I lived on a bus for six months I didn't wear shoes for three of them and we were just uh, on this big uh, bus driving through Patagonia and uh, Argentina and Chile and Ecuador um and uh, that was incredible I came back and I thought this is the life I want to lead you know I don't I don't like business I don't like uh, I don't like money I don't like any of this stuff. It was also the heart of the the height of the financial crisis. So you know it was kind of like the anti banking time. Uh, after that, uh, I came back to the UK and then uh, kind of was stuck in this. On the one hand, I definitely don't want to go into the world of business. On the other hand, like I have this good degree and like maybe it would be nice to earn a little bit of money. And so where do I find that happy medium? And I found it in startups. So I moved to Berlin uh, when I was about. Um, 22 or 23. I got an internship in a startup. I think I was being paid around 400 euros a month or something. <laughs> so it was extremely bare bones. Um, but as soon as I stepped into this world of startups and entrepreneurship, my eyes just opened up and I realized this is this is the life for me. You know, I previously only had very limited work experience working as an economist in the civil service. So very formal, you know, Microsoft Word suits. But in the startup world, everyone was just so free and open and For a young, a smart, ambitious person like myself, it was uh, just this um, this container into which I could grow. So uh, very soon after joining that company, I left to found my own company. Uh, That turned out to be a disaster, but not a disaster. But it didn't didn't you know didn't take off. But out of it, I learned how to program. What was the company about? One that was a disaster. Uh, So yes, disaster is not is is not fair, (laughs) but it, it was um, you know, Craigslist. Yes. So it was like a Craigslist, but, um, based on your neighborhood with the idea of a uh, Skillshare. So someone, so can offer, um, guitar lessons. This person needs a babysitter and you would see it in like a nice format on a map and you'd just be able to kind of like create like a neighborhood economy. Um, so, uh, the pr- issue with this is that it wasn't targeted enough because like, if you say to someone, Hey, like you can, you know, go do everything in your neighborhood. That's not a clear, clearer message of saying like, hey, this is where you can find cleaners or this is where you can find babysitters. And so in the end, uh, the other person took it on and made it purely about cleaners and it actually ended up working in the end. So that was the biggest learning. We just went too broad at the start.
0: Mm, you wanted
1: too many things at the same time. Yeah, we were offering offering too many things uh, and, it, and the message was not clear.
0: Mm.
1: And how did you learn um, uh, to cult? or how do you what are your strategies for learning something new so i taught myself to code um, i tried to, talk, to teach myself to code multiple times because i i liked math i liked video games and like i like computers so I was like, this is going to be this is going to be easy it's going to be fun but it never worked um, and that's because if you try and learn something for the sake of learning it um, that's generally not going to that's not going to work out for you So the time that I learned to code was when there was something that I really wanted to build. And the first thing was helping out with the startup. Uh, The the next thing I built was a Chrome extension. Um, So back in the days, this is like almost 10 years ago, uh, Facebook would show you uh, in like an event page or a location page, it would show you the map of uh, it would use Bing Maps. And I hated Bing Maps, I was like a Google Map purist. So I wrote a Chrome extension that would change it from Bing Maps to uh, Google Maps. Um, I had the idea in the morning, then I programmed it in the afternoon, I launched it in the evening, and then I went viral in Taiwan. <laughs> got oh, wow. it and got featured in Lifehacker and stuff. And that was what got me really excited about programming. It was this quick turnaround that you can take an idea and then you can turn it into something. And with the internet, you can launch it yourself. Uh, and uh, that's what got me hooked and after that the learning came very naturally.
0: Ah wow so you got a white Taiwan like why did they pick it up there I have no
1: idea
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a cool uh, cool story so going back to the startup so the first one was not a big success and what happened after?
1: So after I began to um, I began to really enjoy programming and I was getting pretty good at it and I was uh, creating a niche for myself building, early stage iterations of products mm. for startups. So you have an idea and I'm like, I can help you build that or we'll get that to version one. Um, and then I began to travel. I began to do a combination of traveling, uh, freelancing, and I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I was living a pretty good life. I was going all around the world and uh, even was invited to teach in Ghana for a year. Mm. As I was teaching programming in a startup school in Accra, uh, which, yeah, was an awesome experience. And my life was pretty damn good. You know, I had everything figured out. Uh, But then I had this really big question. And that was, should I move to Berlin and become a proper co-founder of this company? I had started with some friends. We were kind of working here and there, but it was very informal. Um, And then we were about to get our first funding round. So I had this really big decision to make. On the one hand, I had this incredible uh, lifestyle. It was very comfortable. I was able to be very free. On the other hand, there was this new adventure, which was to become a proper co-founder of this company and to move to Berlin and to become an employee of it and to, you know, work nine to fives and work in an office, but have the opportunity of, you know, creating something really cool and really unique with people I loved working with. And it was a very difficult decision, but in the end I decided to, to move to Berlin and I'm really glad I did. So how do you make decisions in life? Um. That's that's a really good question and something I've been thinking a lot about in my later years. I I think listening to your gut is the best thing that you can do. Um, it's it's not always easy, uh, but just yeah, just asking yourself wh- wh- where is my belly right now, like wh- where where is my heart right now. You can even test yourself and say, okay, I'm I'm deciding on doing A and then see what your bodily reaction is, you know, or that I'm going to decide to be and see where your body is there. So you can, you can take that approach. Um, And then there's another more structured approach, which I use now as, as, as a coach, where I ask people to come up with a very high level idea of what they, what their life should be like in, in 10 years, five years, in two years. Uh, And this contains elements like uh, family and relationships, money, lifestyle, career, health, and if there's a really big decision, so I'm now working with founders, for example, who are thinking about stepping down from a company, right? Incredibly big decision, so many different aspects. And often what we find is when you evaluate that decision against the things that you really want out of life. You know, like, uh, I want to be healthy. I want to have a relationship with my family. And often stepping down is the right decision because <laughs> because it will create a lot more space for that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think there's two ways. One is the, gut, the gut-driven approach. The other is a more structured approach. Um, and with big decisions, I think you just need to do the work to look at that decision every single day from different angles. And over time, you will find clarity.
0: I see. So you can either decide by gut feeling or you can have a more structured reports like what are the values that you have in life and you decided to co-found this company can you share a bit about uh, what the company was about
1: yeah absolutely so we co founded a company called Bitwala that, that was then rebranded to Nuri later on so Bitwala was uh, a company that let you easily buy and sell cryptocurrency so you know the world of cryptocurrency has exploded over the last years and it was it has always been difficult and complicated for people to get started with cryptocurrency, even more so a few years ago. So our company allowed you to get into the world of crypto very easily by Bitcoin, by Ethereum, and we also launched a bank account. So you're able to have a full bank account like a Revolut or a Monzo or an N26 uh, with the ability to buy cryptocurrency directly from your bank account. So you don't need to money, move money from your bank account to the exchange to trade it, you can just do it directly inside of one account.
0: Mm. And you raised $50 million for this venture?
1: Yeah, I think even a little bit more in the end. But um, we, yeah, we were, we were VC-backed. Uh, we grew to almost um, 200 employees at mm. peak. Uh, I started off as CTO of the company, then I moved to CEO, and then I uh, moved to chairman about 18 months ago.
0: Mm. And how was the experience to raise... Reach- such amounts
1: of money and to lead a bank you know it's quite a big thing so the the biggest thing for me was not so much the money that we raised but what we could do with it and the best thing that we did with the money was to grow an awesome team and when i look back on my time working in a startup full time that was the the best part of it to find awesome individuals to get them excited by the mission of what our company is doing, and then to build them into a cohesive team with its own company culture, and to grow that over time. So that was uh, we we always used to do company trips. That's one of my entrepreneurial uh, tips, by the way. It's mm-hmm. um, uh, don't do a Christmas party; they're expensive, they're alcohol fueled, a one night. Do a company trip instead, mm. uh, and uh, we did a company trip almost every year. last one we did which was before the pandemic was uh to prague and we rented like a a whole bus like a you know a big coach uh, (laughs) and we filled it up and i remember just getting on that and just seeing everyone on this coach and it's like wow we we feel like a family like the energy is incredible um and like that was that was one of the times when i kind of stopped and said wow what an achievement um and that's, that was the most uh, that was the most rewarding thing for me.
0: Was hiring that bus inspired by the time you lived in, the <laughs> in South America?
1: <laughs> you know, not consciously, but let's go ahead and say yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So you had to hire 200 people uh, or maybe even more because some people probably left. And you wrote an uh, article around uh, 100 employees, 100 lessons. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned a few interview questions that you like to ask. And one of them is what is your favorite spir- spirit animal? <laughs> can you elaborate on that one?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I think I, I want to be careful first of all, because mm-hmm. asking um, bullshit questions or <laughs> too many bullshit questions in an interview can be can be dangerous and mm-hmm. you do, you know you hear about these stories of uh, of all these weird questions that candidates, that candidates get asked. But for me, it's always very important to connect with someone uh, personally. Um, in addition to connecting with them professionally. And so um, people typically have lots of answers rehearsed when you ask them, you know, like, hey, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Can you tell me about a time when you overcame a challenge with a colleague? You've already answered those questions before. When you ask someone what their spirit animal is, then you get uh, get kind of this surprise kind of like quirk of the head, like, hmm. And then they think about it and then they answer. And then you get to learn some things about them that otherwise you might not have learned. um and so uh my spirit animal is a monkey because like i love uh, i love learning i love like using new tools um i like collaborating in groups another uh, question that i really like asking is if you could have any job uh, in any company in the world what would it be
0: Mm. and what answer has really
1: excited you for the second the second one um the answers that have really excited me are ones which are very aligned with our mission people who give an answer like well i would be doing something like this but maybe in a different company or i would be selling my own company and solving for this problem or whatever you know like solving for remittance in africa i don't know what we had some people who say completely different answers to the job that we're talking about and then it's obviously like, well, why do you want to be in this job then? Right. And so it's also a way of just kind of cutting people out who whose motivations don't align with yeah, so what, what the mouth is saying. So you're checking
0: their true motivation
1: yeah. to avoid that they're just looking for a job. And I think the
0: third question that you roll down is, uh, can you share a bit about yourself, uh, something that's not on your resume? And what do you want to hear in these types
1: of answers or what, what do you like to hear? I, so the, 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 there's, there's no right answer here, but I guess you're looking for something that makes you excited about that person, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they have like a crazy hobby or maybe they uh, are practicing some kind of uh, like yoga or meditation or something, or maybe they uh, they have like a connection with a particular country and go back there every single year. Um, It's dangerous to hire people who you would who pass the beer test Mm -hmm. um like that's you know if you can imagine having a beer or two with that person having a nice chat in 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 the pub um because it will just indulge all of your biases you know Mm -hmm. if you're just like hey you're just going to choose like similar uh, middle class white men because Mm -hmm. they're the people you could easily talk to but at the same time i think that there should be a level of personal excitement with the people that you're going to going to work with you know, like, oh, yeah, I heard about this. Like, um, I can't wait to hear, hear more about this aspect of your life. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just allowing them a little bit of space to, again, share something which isn't such a structured, pre-prepared answer. Um, tell me something that's not on your resume. It's completely open. You can tell us anything you want. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's a really good way of getting to know who's behind, who's behind that LinkedIn profile. So you
0: can understand if your values are aligned and if your personalities uh, match in a way. You mentioned the word beer test and I also read that you organized evenings called iBeer, if (laughs) I'm correct, where you combine drinking beer with generating ideas. Can you share a bit about those uh, experiences?
1: Yeah, so one thing that we did really well at at Bidwalla slash Nori was the culture and this started from a very um, early time when it was just the the three co-founders plus a couple of other employees. Um, We would uh, we would have lots of ideas, right? It was very early stage, so we didn't really know what we were building, and we could go this way, and we could go this way, and we could go this way. Um, and so we decided to create a container for that, uh, where we would set aside time to discuss these, uh, these like these crazy ideas. Um, and we would of course be drinking beer at the same time. It would be like a fun, like you know, Friday evening thing. And we would uh, talk about the ideas. We would drink beers. We would rate them. Um, so we would rate them for like how, how likely this is to work, uh, how much money it would make, and how crazy is it. Um, and uh, some of those ideas actually turned into products. So one of the ideas was creating a Bitcoin bank account. And many years later, we actually did that. Uh, so, yeah, it was just a really fun way of allowing our, our creativity and our craziness to come out.
0: I think that's a brilliant idea. And the alcohol maybe allows you to be creative and not
1: focus on the the barriers immediately, right? Yeah. And, and just to have fun as a team.
0: Yeah, uh, that that's brilliant. So you must have learned a lot in this entire um, uh, journey. Um, one of the things I also uh, read about you is that uh, around your 30th birthday, you had cancer. Can you share a bit about that uh, experience and, and how, how that is for you now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's something I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about. Um in in the office, we were having a meeting, and uh, a colleague texted me afterwards. He said, I hope uh, you don't mind me saying, but your neck looks big. And I went to the bathroom, and I checked the mirror. And it was like I was a fat person, but just in my neck. So it didn't look normal. Uh, I went to see a doctor the next day, and uh, she sent me to the hospital. They said, oh, it's probably nothing, but we'll do some more tests. The test came back ambiguous. It's still probably nothing, but we'll do some more tests, blah, blah, blah. And this escalated over the course of, I think, like 10 days, uh, two weeks, to the point where I was having an emergency operation. They still hadn't confirmed it was cancer, but the risk was high enough, Where thankfully they decided to operate. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I had the first operation. They took out half of my uh, thyroid. That's the organ that kind of uh, hugs your neck. It's Schildtrüse in, uh, in German. Um, and then uh, they found a tumor in that. So then the day, day, day after they found that, they did a second operation and took out the whole organ. And uh, yeah, it was um, not a fun experience. Uh, luckily, I was relatively young and healthy. So I, I dealt with the operations okay. Um, and then I, I wrote this blog article a few months afterwards. Uh, so I think it was like, How to Deal with Cancer in a Startup. Um, it's actually looking back on it, I kind of wish I hadn't written that title because I don't think I dealt with it particularly well. Mm-hmm. Um, my approach was just to go back to work straight away afterwards. So I just thought like physiologically, I felt okay. So I'm just going to go back to work. I'm going to bury myself in in my startup. It was, of course, a crucial time. It's always a crucial time in a startup. And I really prioritized going back to work over my health. Uh, and yeah, that was a mistake in retrospect. I should have taken a month or so off just to like, fully recover, like give myself some, some mental space as well as physical. Uh, and I think that contributed to getting burnt out later on, you know, just like mm-hmm. pushing, pushing all of that healing aside, just going straight back to the beast. So in hindsight, you would have taken more rest. I absolutely would have taken taken more rest, and I would have I would have zoomed out and realized that even though that was a critical time for the startup, um it's still going to survive. And long term, what's best for me and for the company is to make sure that I recover fully and did the pressure to continue also come from your co-founders and the investor, or was it mainly your own pressure no it didn't come from the co-founders and the investors it came from uh, it came from myself mm. um obviously i was thinking about the team i was thinking about my investors and i was putting the pressure on myself but there was no one who was telling me to go back and work other than me mm. so what um the younger version of you like what
0: is the underlying cause that you wanted to go back to to work so soon?
1: I got really excited about building a company just because I love building stuff. And then I built a team around that. And I felt like I owed it to the team to be there.
0: Mm. Mm. So you were really committed and you really enjoyed yeah. building something.
1: Exactly. like I was a leader and I wanted to be there for, for my team. Mm. It must have been a tough uh, experience and how is your health situation now related to this yeah it's fine uh, so um, luckily uh, with um, uh, thyroid cancer even if you have your thyroid removed you just take a pill a day to mm-hmm. replace the function of it so of all of the organs where you can have cancer mm-hmm. it's it's a really good one to have uh, <laughs> rel- relative of course mm. and now you're you're recovered so nothing
0: yeah exactly like, not less of this and in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about balance, and you had this experience of having cancer. Did your health habits change after this experience, or did anything change?
1: Yeah, that's some. Um, that's an interesting question, um, and uh, the answer makes me a little bit sad actually, because the the short answer is no, hmm. um, and that's partly because of of me going back to work so soon afterwards. You know, you hear about people who have. Um, Life-changing events happening to them often an illness, right? Like you know, after I got cancer, then I, you know, I, my complete perspective on health changed. Um, with me, I feel like I missed out on those learnings because I was so determined to go back and work in a startup. So um, you know, now we talk about like integration, right? Is a concept that we have here at the at the retreat and breathwork. You do some deep work with breathwork, and then you integrate it, and you get those learnings learnings in. You know, you and then other other forms might be journaling. I didn't really do that i just said you know in a company in the west in cities stuff is either like broken or it's fixed we see it as being tasks and then they're done let me move on right and so for me that my my illness was just another task it was like i'm okay, gonna take that off and go straight back and i didn't invest in in the learnings from that i'm a little bit uh sad i i, I tried to think about it now but it's a little bit too late um but to really think about uh, yeah how those lessons um that could have been taken from that, and how it how it might have might have changed my life and just the decisions I make afterwards,
0: yeah, but maybe the time was not um, it, it was not the right timing for you to learn about it. Um, but later you had a burnout, how long or or burnout symptoms or how long after that
1: did it happen? Um, I think it probably happened. Uh, I think it was probably happening very slowly, and then it maybe peaked uh, like a, a year or a year or eighteen months afterwards. Um, it was the pandemic. Uh, it was we were also having a difficult time in the company fundraising, and that was just a really tough year for me, where I just felt worn down uh, slowly over time. And you know, you have a tremendous amount of responsibility on your head as a as a founder, especially as a CEO founder, because. You have given these people jobs, you've convinced them to quit their job to come work for you. And so when you worry about if you're going to find funding in the future, that's an extremely stressful time. And so I think I spent that whole year just in a in a state of stress, you know, cortisol mm. levels, very high, um, not always dealing with the stress in, in the right way. Uh, and yeah, afterwards I just was exhausted.
0: I can imagine. And did you did you have um like a proper burnout or or you had burnout symptoms or so the same yeah
1: i think i'm um, I, so i i actually haven't met so many people who've had like full on burnouts where like from one day to the next they just stop and they can't do anything um what m- my experience was just uh kind of a a lack of energy to the point where getting out of bed would be difficult. Mm. Um, Not really being excited by much anymore, especially not uh, my job. And um, this, this happens kind of gradually, you know, and you can still kind of like be functioning. You can still show up to meetings and like uh, all of this stuff, but you you feel like you're forcing yourself every single day. And so when I, when I coach founders now, um, I, I always pick up and call them out when they use phrases like, this is how I should be feeling,
0: right? Mm. I should
1: feel excited about this. Because when you're using those normative terms and telling yourself, uh, like judging yourself for not feeling the way that's expected of you because of your position, because of your past or whatever, mm. um, when there's that gap between what you should be feeling and what you are feeling, I think that's, um, that's a pretty powerful indication that you're heading towards the burnout uh, slowly. Yeah. There can also be,
0: um, I recognize, there could also be feelings of guilt, right? That you're like, oh, but I created this, so I should be excited. That you feel guilty that you're not so excited anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And because um, you're mentioning that you're nowadays a, found, a coach of founders. Mm-hmm. So what is your approach to uh, to coaching?
1: So when I stepped down from the company, it was a pretty, um, pretty difficult time because as a founder, you get so wrapped up in your company, you know, your, your identity uh, almost uh, ceases to exist independently and it just becomes an extension of this company. And it's uh, kind of separating those two things is a painful process. Um, It was painful for me and it's been painful for some of the founders that I've, I've worked with since. I had to ask myself in the state of kind of burnout and um, transition, like what are the things that I like doing? And one of the things that I do like doing is to help other entrepreneurs, people who are in the early phase. I think because it's good to feel useful and my experience is very applicable. And also it's really fun to be in that early exciting stage of like, you know, still not figuring everything everything out maybe just a few like a few co-founders like a few employees like it's very scrappy everything's still evolving um that gives me a lot of energy so then i started doing mentoring for startups uh, and then i trained as a coach at the end of last year and i've been uh, yeah coaching founders since january um it's uh yeah it's been it's been really amazing um i think uh Coaching founders is a little bit different from uh, typical coaching, like leadership coaching or like life coaching or whatever, because the number one quality that founders look for in a founder coach is that they've done it mm-hmm. and you need to use a mixture of um, pure coaching, which is, is nothing to do with your experience. It's kind of just, you know, asking the right questions and, uh, and, and helping them figure stuff out on their own with this combination of mentoring where it comes from your experiences. Yeah so it's a mix of asking the right
0: questions and sometimes also sharing your own experiences. Yeah absolutely. And advising
1: a bit. And if I if if I could I like I think we we use the term um coaching a lot in the world of startups um very incorrectly and you know all managers should be a coach mm. but I don't think many managers know how to be a coach. And so I think it's important to understand that that mm. distinction and my tip is basically when someone comes to you with a problem, try and ask the right questions. So, okay, well, what, why is this an issue for you? Uh, what's a different way of looking at it? Like, what's a, an optimistic way of looking at it? What's a critical way of looking at it? Explore it with them. And maybe do that for around uh, two-thirds of the time. And then at the end, once they've come up with some possible solutions, you can then say, and would it be okay if I shared my experiences? And then you go in and share your experiences. If you just give your your direct reports, The answers straight away, you're not training them to think for themselves. But if you're never giving them the answers, you're maybe not helping them either. So it's finding that balance and it's starting off by getting as much as possible them to answer their own questions. And then at the end, going ahead and sharing your knowledge.
0: I think that's a great approach. I also give trainings once in a while. And what I learned from feedback is that people at some point also want to hear your advice. Yeah. Because they come for training or coach also for concrete suggestions. Uh, but I like I like this mix. And you also mentioned that you are formally trained as a coach. So, what type of uh,
1: education did you pick or choose? So, I did the Coactive Coach Training, uh, which I think is the biggest school in the world, and they do um, general coach training. Uh, so, I guess um, yeah, it could be exe- could go into executive coaching or leadership coaching. It could go into life coaching, um, and There's five modules I took. Each one is a long weekend, so like um, two and a half days. Uh, And yeah, it's a really, really good foundation to coaching. And what I would say is, if anyone is thinking about becoming a coach, they do a fundamentals course, uh, which is just one weekend, two and a half days. I think it's about um, uh, maybe two, two and a half K euros, or maybe it's even cheaper. Um, But if you're interested Just do that one course, and I think you'll have a very good idea afterwards whether or not you want to go deeper.
0: And can you mention one thing uh, that you really learned from this uh, coaching degree?
1: I think the one thing that I learned from the coaching degree that really stands out is being present, being in the moment, um, being in, 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 able to intuit, to intu- intuitively um, uh, feel alongside that person, um, and just to, to focus on one person for for that period of, of time, mm. instead of being distracted or thinking about your next to do's Exactly, thinking about thinking about. As soon as someone starts talking, you know, we have the habit of thinking, "How does that relate to my experience?" Oh, maybe, maybe I can, you know, share this thing about myself, right? You know waiting for your kind of planning the next thing you're going to say whereas in coaching you're forced to kind of just flip into this purely listening mode where you focus 100% on that person um and that is something that people just don't do and so it sounds very very simple but in coaching that is uh, that is a skill that you you train again and again and again um and it's it's deeply satisfying it's I really enjoy my coaching sessions because it's almost like a form of meditation. You know, you forced your own mind to quiet and you just try and be there for that person. I see. So do you have a
0: kind of a ritual before you enter a coaching session?
1: <laughs> I don't have a, a ritual per se, but I try and make sure that um, there's no distractions around. So I double check the Wi-Fi. I check that no one is going to come in. Uh, check, I have a battery. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, I will just try and give myself a little bit of space beforehand to get into the zone. Um, I think, yeah, you just need to be a little bit disciplined. Also, obviously, stuff like turning off WhatsApp and uh, a messenger and that kind of thing. Um, it, it, it's about getting into the zone. So, ma- enabling yourself to get into the zone, minimizing distractions that might take you out of it.
0: Yeah. So, it's really about being present and being a good listener.
1: Yeah. If
0: you analyze the people that you have coached so the these founders so what are the three key topics that kind of summarize the the, the questions they have
1: yeah um i think the the first one is just how do i become the person i need to be um and that like if you were to give a negative framing of that you might call it imposter syndrome So you have people who are doing this for the first time, who are growing a team for the first time, who have raised funds for the first time, and it's like they've got this mammoth task of like building a startup and and being successful and they haven't done it before. So uh, helping them to develop the skills and the tools and the methodologies to become the founder they need for this successful company to happen. Um, A common theme that I see with more established companies is co-founder relationships. Uh, so, um, getting, getting into a co-founder relationship is like getting married, you know, it's, (laughs) it's a a close union of two or more people. Um, there's also legal, legal aspects as well. And, and you have a baby to boot, you have the company, which is kind of like the baby, right? You might have different ideas about, you you both love it very deeply, but you might have different ideas about how it should be, how it should be raised. Um, and so, uh, that's always a, a very interesting challenge and one that I like diving into. Um, and then the third thing would be just giving, giving the co-founders space to work through a big thing that they have on their mind. Um, so uh, for one of my companies, for example, um, it was we had this really ambitious growth targets and we completely missed them in the last quarter. Um, like, what do we do, you know? And then it's helping them to, to do a, a retrospective on that to create a strategy going forward and to figuring out, you know, how are we going to recover from this? So this is less me doing the work for them. It's more me structuring their work. Um, And then at the end, it's, oh, wow, that's great. Now I feel more clear about that, and I feel like I have a plan going forward. So it's kind of a mixture of the proactive stuff, um, like helping you to become a better leader, and the reactive stuff. um, Arguing with my co-founder, growth numbers are bad. um, How do we solve this? And do you feel...
0: In terms of percentages, do they come more with proactive uh, things or reactive?
1: I think it's about 50 fifty-fifty. Um, it's also it's not a not a so, like sometimes you have things related, right? So you might say, oh, "I'm having this tension with my co-founder," and then it's like, "Hey, let's talk through that," and that's a more reactive issue, and then. Why don't you spend the rest of the time going through a feedback framework, which you can implement with your co-founder. And then we turn it into okay, proactively thinking about how we can prevent this and maintain good relationships in the future. I see, I see. So the three topics are how do I become the person I wanna
0: become, co-founder relationships and creating a space to reflect on past events and strategies for the future. And then you balance proactive and reactive um, elements. If we if we deep dive in co-founder relationships, if someone wants to set up a new company and wants to hire co-founders or hire uh, find co-founders, what are kind of the, the things that you need to have shared agreements
1: on, hmm. ideally? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I would say um, it is like marriage and you wouldn't get married to someone after the first date. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I see, people just jumping into something together when you don't really know that person, you don't know how they are to work with. Um, I, What you said, agreements, and my brain immediately goes to kind of like more, more legal agreements when I hear that word. Um, I, I think what's really important is to make sure that you have a shared set of values and a shared vision for the company. So imagine like two brilliant people who are excited by the same problem. One wants to become a millionaire within the next five years and <laughs> retire. The other one wants to uh, make this his life's work and to change the world, solving whatever problem that you want to solve. These two people are going to be very aligned at the start because they both want to grow an awesome business. But a few years down, down, down the line, they're going to diverge and they're going to, be, going to begin, begin to have arguments because one is more focused on the mission. The other one is more focused on making money and, and cashing out. And that's a, an extremely extreme example. But... As co-founders, we are natural optimists. We're optimists because we're crazy enough to say, hey, this um, idea is potentially going to become very, very big. And so I think we have an optimism bias towards our co-founders as well. So we look at the good stuff and we say, that's amazing, everything else is great. <laughs> and we don't really force ourselves to ask the questions that we need to, to make sure that there's a deep alignment in terms of values, in terms of vision. So um, as an example, uh, the uh, Coinbase co-founders And when they were just starting off, um, they went kind of for like a romantic retreat together. Mm. And uh, they asked each other the um, New York Times, I think it's 26 questions, to fall in love, Mm. uh, right? As a way of really getting to know that person in a deep way. Um, So I would say, um, yeah, number one tip, don't rush into it. Um, (laughs) Number two tip, don't just uh, have too much optimism bias and just assume that everything is going to be okay because it feels good um and then what else yeah a uh, number three um like work together on a project first so this should be easy because in the early stage of, of a startup you have a bunch of stuff to do like for example validation so you know okay say let's hey um, even though we've got full-time jobs we're going to commit to working uh, 16 hours a week together working on validation and just we're going to organize our work you're going to do some interviews i'm going to do some market research and if you just do that that's an incredibly effective way of figuring out if you're going to want to work with this person over the next years depending on how well or badly it goes in a project like I go ahead about a story the other day of um uh, this a sole founder and uh, he's looking for a potential co-founder and there was this guy and he seemed great on paper and he had this awesome resume and awesome experience and he was really ent- really enthe- enthusiastic and then uh, and then this founder said okay well um I'm going to add you to the Google drive. I'm going to create an email address for you. And then I'm going to uh, set you these tasks to do. He doesn't even open the email for 10 days. Uh, And then when he does, he like replies with some excuses about why he's, uh, why he's not going to do the work right now. Or, you know, he's too busy. Those are just such clear signs uh, that, you know, this isn't the right person. And, a more experienced co-founder uh, might just say, okay, the CV's good, this guy pre- presents well in meetings, so let's just go ahead and do it and like, sign the documents or whatever. Um, so that would be the, the, the third tip. Um, try, try working together to see if you're gonna enjoy working together. I think
0: that's a really good uh, tip, yeah? You can work on a small project and see how it goes. So you say shared vision and shared values is of critical importance. So what were the values
1: for Nuri? So I think we we had um, implicit and we had explicit values. So we did later on define our values. We did this once and it didn't really work because there were too many values and they were quite generic. Uh, and then we did it again and it worked well. But for us at the start, I think the values that we, that we really, really lived was one, being incredibly excited about cryptocurrency and blockchain, really believing that uh, this was a revolution waiting to happen. So we later on named this as "Live the Revolution" as one of our values. It's, hey, this is a big deal. It's like as big as the internet, maybe. Let's let's be excited about that. Um, the second one was uh, really about the relationships inside of the company. So as co-founders, we had built a deep relationship on on based on friendship, hanging out, doing fun things together, and so really create, creating creating that, that closeness, you know. And um, uh, the company trips that I mentioned before. They were the stuff of legends. Like that's what people would, you know, the new employees would hear stories about the next company trips and be so excited about getting on the next ones. And we really placed a big emphasis on just making sure that everyone, uh, everyone was able to connect with each other on on a personal level, on a a friendship level, on a fun level. And that turned out to be really valuable when we had difficult times, for example, because people kind of had that 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 capital that it built up over time um, with these incredible experiences. So, So they stuck together during the difficult times. Um those are the two i, I don't want, I want to stop there because I think like if I were to really define like what were the core values I mean, in the early days uh, it was those two yeah, so the first one is really
0: lift a revolution and um kind of breathing the the crypto blockchain revolution. so what is your view on 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 crypto also with all your experience like what's the broader mission for for the world of the crypto industry
1: hmm. yeah. So I, I, would, I would maybe paint a, a broader picture first of all. Um, you have blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, if you think about the internet as being the invention that allowed us to transfer information costlessly, you know, I can just send an email or a WhatsApp message now anywhere in the world, I can send a file, I can download uh, any kind of books from libraries or whatever. It made the transfer of information extremely cheap. Um, blockchain does the same thing. But it does it for value, opposed to the internet. So it allows us to transfer value anywhere, in the world, instantly and for free, more or less. So that's the, the kind of the potential. And this started off with uh, cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin being the first. And um, but then it evolved into more complicated things. So with Ethereum, the second biggest cryptocurrency, you have uh, smart contracts where you can do uh, not just sending. A number of coins from Alice to Bob, but you can do more complicated things like make agreements online and that kind of thing. Uh, and then also you see applications like NFTs, where you have uh, individual tokens representing a piece of art, for example, or it could be a legal right in the future. Um, and then this can exist in this in this new world of smart contracts, uh, where you can have these complex legal agreements, uh, the settlement of value, uh, all being done in an automated way. Um, and I think that is really the the promise of blockchain. It is allowing us to create uh, this uh, the, the internet of value, um, just as we did the internet of information uh, over the last few decades.
0: And what what role did Nuri uh, play in this revolution? What
1: are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of getting a lot of people into cryptocurrency uh, for the first time. Um, so we really prioritized making it extremely easy for our users. And we did things like limit ourselves to two cryptocurrencies because we wanted to, you know, not overwhelm our customers with the thousands of different coins there are. And we kept the user interface really simple. And yeah, we just prioritized make, getting getting those people in for the first time. Hmm. That's uh, that, That's beautiful. The thing that I don't
0: understand yet, because I mean, my knowledge is limited, but you say with blockchain, you transfer value for free. But you also raised all this funding uh, and probably had a business model. So how does your business model business model live together with like mm-hmm. the idea of that you can transfer stuff for free?
1: Yeah, th- that's a good question. Um, you can see the you can see parallels between um, other things like, for example, email. Mm-hmm. So email is free. You have have like SMTP, um, but then you have companies who are building email solutions on top of that base technology, right? Mm so you have email as a technology but then everyone is using uh, gmail right and then you pay for gmail exactly you have um like you know websites and http as a technology and then you have companies like squarespace and godaddy who are allowing the customer to interface mm. um so we were kind of providing this this layer on top um where yeah it, basically allowing our customers to pay for a really convenient way of, of accessing this I see. So you added a layer to technology that in
0: essence is free mm-hmm. and then you probably got like a, a percentage of the
1: transactions. Yeah. Whenever a customer traded, then we would charge a fee. Ah, I see. I see.
0: And can you share a bit about where the company is now?
1: Yeah. So uh, the company has been going through a really difficult uh, period uh, since. Um, <laughs> so I, I left about 18 months ago and I think now now maybe six weeks, two months ago, um, the company filed for insolvency. Mm -hmm. uh, And this is uh, basically a kind of a legal way of saying that we don't have enough money to pay our debts. Um, So the company is effectively in a state of crisis now. uh, And we are looking for a way out of that. And this is probably going to be some kind of acquisition. um, And I'm just hoping that we are able to find uh, someone to to take us over and to continue uh, with the same mission that we had. So, with this company, uh, you've led the company
0: through multiple uh, stages and and um, and developments. You've been a CTO, you've been a CEO, you've been a chairman, you've been a shareholder. So, how was the transition from being a CEO to to
1: chairman, and what are your learnings from this phase? Yeah, so I, the, the 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 transition um, was a massive one, and I, I think another way of describing it as stepping down. So this is relatively common in startups. So at one point, the founder CEO will step down and be replaced by someone, you know, with more experience, is right for the next stage of the company. Um, and it was a very, very painful transition for me, because, as I mentioned before, I was just so wrapped up in the company, my, my identity was wrapped up in the company, it was really kind of who I was. And I think I'd also lost part of myself to the company. Like I just prioritized it above myself for so long. Um, and it it took a lot of work uh, with, um, with coaches, therapists, with friends and family, with myself, journaling, um, all the stuff I mentioned uh, in the decision-making to try and give myself, uh, yeah, try and give myself the right guidance on this question. And eventually I decided like yes, um, stepping down is the right thing. I looked at things like, you know, relationships and health and lifestyle. And I thought, actually, you know, all of that stuff is going to get quite a boost from not working in this crazy, more than full-time startup life. Um, And, yeah, it took a long time. Because if you're working full-time for a company for many years, um, especially in a startup, you know, you you need to relearn things. Like, you need to relearn how to put yourself first. You need to relearn uh, what you enjoy doing, right, and finding joy in the little things. Um, and that 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 is still going on for me but i would say like it, it took at least kind of um a year really to come down from that crazy from that crazy time i empathize with that slowing <laughs> down is
0: uh it's very difficult especially if you're used to this uh this busyness but you have transitioned and now you a founder coach as we already discussed and you're also on a mission to visit each country in the world, which is a mission that I'm inspired by because I am also a passionate traveler and I've also founded a travel company. Mm -hmm. So travel is an important part of uh, of my life. But why have you chosen to dedicate yourself to this uh, new mission?
1: So part of of my journey of stepping down, it was was important for me to rediscover the stuff that brought me joy. And, uh, you, you know, you you kind of fantasize about all of these things that you might do. Uh, But if you're burnt out or recovering from a burnout, and often you still don't find yourself doing them. So I had to ask myself really at my core, like what was the stuff that always was exciting to me, that I always loved doing? And I landed on two things, travel and languages. So I threw myself headfirst into both. Uh, I started uh, learning Uh, I started picking up Chinese again, and just spending hours a day on that and getting really excited and really obsessed uh, by that. And uh, I'd always kind of joked, probably like many people, maybe like yourself, (laughs) like, yeah, I visit every country in the world one day. Um, I'm someone who loves to travel. I'm also like someone who likes like a challenge, like a project. Uh, And it was, it was in Madeira when I was sitting on a beach, where I actually kind of thought, hmm, well, now is actually a good time to try and do that because you know I'm not I'm not working full time and I, I have I have more funds behind me than you know when I was 20, um, and then I thought about actually making this a possibility and it's been uh, yeah something I've been uh, doing now for um, for a few months I guess uh, it's very early stages. There's tons of learnings. Um, you can get burnt out through travel just <laughs> as you can get burnt out through work. And I'm trying to balance uh, my my travel, my career, uh, and also to not go insane mm. uh, during that whole process. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's def- definitely a learning journey, but um, it just gets me really excited whenever I think about it.
0: I can imagine that it's it's truly excited exciting. I have a funny story about burnout. So when I started taking a sabbatical, I put on LinkedIn, I'm on sabbatical. Mm-hmm. Then a the German woman approached me who also took a sabbatical and is fascinated by people taking sabbaticals. She wanted to have a chat. She was planning to leave for, I think six months and then she was gone for seven years. Hmm. And part of the seven years, she spent some time in a monastery or ashram in India. And that's where she got a burnout. Hmm. So she thought she she would go for relaxing, but before she knew it, she was the manager of the ashram. Oh, wow! (laughs) So she was again like achieving and performing and that's where she got a burnout.
1: So, I think there was a... You've missed your quarterly a quota for enlightenment. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, I think it was funny. So how many countries have you visited right now?
1: Hmm. I think it's uh, 76. I actually um, reduced my count by two. Uh, I took off Tunisia because I the only time I visited there was as a child mm-hmm. and I don't really remember it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also took off uh, Myanmar because I was just crossing for a few hours for a border crossing. So I, I think that's an interesting conversation to have as well. Like what does it really mean to visit a country? The technical thing is that you're just legally there and you get the passport stamp. But for me, I want to be able to experience it in some way as an adult.
0: I can uh, I can I
1: can imagine because
0: what's your strategy? Because uh, how many countries are there in total?
1: So, there's 195 countries is the most commonly agreed number. That's, I think, 193 UN member states plus mm. two observers. Mm. So, you still have
0: 119 uh, to go. And you seem to be somewhat uh, quite goal-oriented and and has a strategy. So, what's your approach to reaching this goal?
1: Yeah, Um. that's a really good question. Uh. So, at the moment... um. One of the big constraints is my career. So I work as a coach. And this is really good on the one hand because you make quite a lot of money per hour. So you don't need to work that many hours to be able to support your lifestyle. Um, But the challenge is you need to work at specific times. So you need to schedule the sessions and you need to have good enough Wi-Fi for those sessions. Um, So right now I'm focusing on uh, countries which are in uh, the... um, like the Western Hemisphere, I guess, so um, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and the Americas, just a lot lot of countries. (laughs) Uh, And I try and batch my coaching um, onto a few days every couple of weeks. So I make sure that I have good Wi-Fi for those working days, and the rest of the time I can can more relax. So that's one big constraint. Another big constraint is um, uh, weather and seasonality. So um, there's some places which, like, um, I'm going to hopefully going to the Middle East uh, in January, February. That's the best time to visit. If you were to visit it in July, August, it would be a terrible time to visit it because it's just so hot. So also looking at kind of the areas that you can go at different times of the year. Um, then there's other life commitments. So, for example, there's an opening of a, of a school in Rwanda I want to go to in March. Um, there's my sister's wedding in June. So I know I have to be in specific places at specific times. So planning travel around that is another another element. Um, And then, uh, yeah, there's also the kind of minimizing flights and environmental element, which we can talk about in a second. So I'm trying to stay in one region for a a longer period of time, trying to avoid uh, taking too many flights all over the place. Um, And so uh, that's that. And perhaps the most important one, which uh, so it shows that I'm mentioning it, uh, mentioning it at the end. I should be mentioning it at the beginning. Um, is to create the right rhythm of travel, which will allow you to look after yourself. So, before I came to Innate, uh, I was um, four weeks in the Caribbean in Guyana, Suriname, Barbados, and Trinidad. Awesome trip, but it was a week in each country. It was very exhausting, um, and now I'm here. In, in an age and I'm recovering because I'm in one place for a month and it's a very healing, very nurturing process. So I think my my, my guesstimate for next year is I'm going to do two months of traveling, one month in one place hmm. or one month. You know, maybe it's two weeks in Bristol where my home is, two weeks in Berlin to visit old friends. But um, yeah, like uh, to, to find that balance to, because if you just travel the whole time, especially if you have to work on top of it, you will just get exhausted.
0: Yeah, so you need to, to to balance this goal again to avoid that you um, that you make yourself too tired. Mm-hmm. And what about the environmental consequences? You mentioned that, like what's your approach to that?
1: Yeah, so basically um, flights are really bad for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, uh, in, in many ways, especially uh, short flights because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to get like the many tons of, you know, metal and rubber and stuff off the off the runway. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in some ways, it's best to take uh, well, it's better to take one long flight uh, a year than like many uh, small flights that add up to it. Um, there's yeah, you should reduce the number of flights you take as much as possible. Like that's the best way of doing it. Um, but if you if you want to travel, um, then uh, sometimes flying is a necessary evil. And I haven't come up with the with the perfect solution yet, um, but I'm very conscious of this because I think you know in a time of um, in the times that we're living, right? I want my journey to be something which has a net positive on the world, not a net, ne- not, not a net negative. And so I'm thinking about this a lot. This is currently where I'm at. Um, you can offset your carbon. Mm. So this is basically the idea of uh, if I emit how many kilograms sort of um, of a CO2. So I think it's about a thousand kilograms. If you fly from London to LA, for example, mm-hmm. you can pay a company to effectively do activities that would then offset the carbon. So then you can say, oh, I'm carbon neutral, right? And yeah. um, there's a number of issues with this. So there's a good, uh, last week tonight, Um, the YouTube show with John Oliver, mm-hmm. he has an episode about carbon offsets. And you can see that there's a lot of bullshit happening in the industry. So, for example, in the U.S., companies can um, create carbon uh, offset credits by saying, I'm not going to cut down these trees for a few more years, even if the trees were on protected land, so they wouldn't have been able to protect them anyway. Mm. So there's, like, a lot of bullshit, I think, uh, I'm guessing, especially in the U.S., because the U.S. is just generally more lax with these kind of regulations. So until now, I've been using a a German company to do this. This was recommended through... um, like a, a climate-orientated um, leadership group I'm part of, Leaders for Climate Action. And so I, I just blindly took the recommendation and said, well, if these guys are recommending it, then that's a, that's a good sign. Yeah. Um, and But but there's still issues with that because, you know, if you look at the kind of projects they're doing, um, like uh, wind farms, like planting more trees, et cetera, um, these can take a, a while to kick in. Um, and another really important thing that you should look for in offsetting on carbon is... Um, the uh extendability of the projects. So for example, if you're using wind farms to offset your uh, carbon, well if you pay like a hundred euros at the end of the year, that's not going to equal one new wind farm, right? Hmm. So you need to be really careful that like what you're doing is going to have a direct impact to offset your carbon. There's a solution which is um is is really promising. It's not a silver bullet, but it's way better. It's um direct carbon capture.
0: Direct carbon capture.
1: Yeah. And these are um, initiatives that are taking carbon directly from the atmosphere and trapping it underground. Mm. And this seems to me like being a very, uh, very clean and direct solution, you know, where you're just taking literally the amount of carbon that you emitted from the atmosphere and then putting it back underground. Um, And I really hope that this evolves over time. So it allows, um, yeah, it, it allows people who wanna offset their carbon. with with a high degree of certainty and assuredness that this will happen. Um, Challenges exist. Like right now, these are only functioning on a pretty small scale. Also, there's an electricity cost to capture the carbon and put it on the ground. And so there's one cool plant in Iceland where, you know, they have a lot of cheap geothermal energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, it's relatively early days. Um, So you're figuring out the best ways to do it, but you want to offset your carbon. That's the strategy uh, for now. Like the, the reality is the best way is to not travel. <laughs> um, and I I struggle with that because, you know, now I'm making an intention to travel and the best thing to do for the planet would be not to travel at all. I, I guess I'm trying to find that balance and I'm trying to be as mindful as possible. I, I think there's also, um, the stuff I mentioned is, is not particularly cheap. Um, hmm. Like uh, offsetting your carbon is not um, not a crazy amount of money. It's maybe... If you fly quite a bit, it's maybe like yeah, 1, 000, um, 1, a thousand, a thousand fifteen hundred euros a year. I think I paid one time. But if you do the direct carbon capture stuff, then it can get really expensive really quickly. Mm. And then we have to ask ourselves: Well, travel is already a privilege. What happens if we uh, have to offset our carbon as well as as well as travel, or that yeah. we you know feel the moral obligation? Then it becomes like an even more even more of a privilege, becomes even more expensive for the people who can afford to fly like me versus the people who can't. And so there's not only an environmental question, there's also a social question as well. How much would it cost if
0: you visit these 195 countries? Like the direct carbon capture. Do you have an estimate?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't right now. Um, Like, if I had to guesstimate, I would say it's maybe adding a Adding twenty five percent to the price of all of the flights. Mm. Um, it, so with direct carbon capture, again, the price varies massively. Like using this implant in Iceland is extremely expensive. Like um, it's around, I think it's around a thousand euros to offset a um, thousand kilograms of uh, CO two, which is uh, the you know flying from uh, from London to LA, and that's pretty insane, right? To add on mm. like a thousand, thousand dollars, a thousand euros to the price of the flight there's other direct carbon captures which are cheaper. Um, and so e- even there, like I think there's a lot of variability and I'm afraid I don't have uh, don't have the final answer, but, no, but it's be around, interesting to figure out. Around 25% added to the cost of the flight. Don't okay. quote me on that. I know you're going to, but that would be huh? my, my guess if I were forced to give an answer to today. Guess, yeah.
0: All right, so talking about travel, one of the passions we have is learning languages. And uh, during our retreat in Portugal, you did a workshop on how to learn a language. Can you elaborate a bit on your um, yeah
1: tips and tricks for learning a language fast? Yeah. Um, so before I get into tips and tricks, I would say probably the most important thing is to know why you're learning a language um, and to really try and get excited about that. Um, so a, like a, for, for people who have lifestyles like, uh, like you and me, Jasper, who, tra- who travel a lot, well, um, often the excitement comes from I'm going to visit a place or I'm going to live in a place and I want to, you know, be able to speak some words in the local language and all, order, like, a tapas in in Spain, order, you know, like, some, some wine in French. Um, other people, it's, like, a romantic partner or a friend. You know, that's the reason like a really about learning a language. For other people, it's a culture. So uh, learning Korean because you're interested in K-pop or learning Japanese because you're interested in, uh, in anime um, or telenovelas in Spanish, for example. Um, so really focus on what is making you excited about learning that language. I'm someone who gets excited about learning languages for the sake of learning languages, because I just find them like, intuitive, like intrinsically cool and fun uh, and exciting. And I also love comparing languages and seeing how they differ. Um, so I was able to find a lot of motivation internally. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, the stuff that works for me um, is uh, really looking at your method trying to be as excited as possible. Um, so don't force yourself to do too much. Try, try and do the things that feel really right and try and iterate quickly and experiment with different tools and different techniques. Um, and so there's uh, there's kind of three components that go into actually how I learn a language. Um, there's having awesome conversations. Uh, so finding, finding people where you can like, have fun talking to them. So, you know, like if you move to a foreign city, find a language exchange or a language exchange partner and try and find someone who you find really genuinely interesting. And you're like looking forward to those conversations because like, oh man, like that was a great conversation. Like I want to have an even better one next time. Like that's a, that's the motivation for you to learn that language. And you can also find a teacher online. Uh, I use italki, uh, which I've been using for quite a few years, where you can just kind of have Skype lessons online. So just set yourself up to have awesome conversations. The second thing is finding great content. So, uh, you need to practice your your reading, or more importantly, your listening skills. So, find stuff that you like to consume in that language. So, for me, uh, this is um, like there's some YouTube channels in Chinese that I really really like. There's um, one which is um, I think it's called Mandarin Corner, and they do these like lengthy interviews. One of the interviews was um, with a Chinese woman who moved to the U.S. to study, and it was all about and these uh, like all of the all of the differences she found, you know, and it was really interesting to see like how like a Chinese person sees uh, the Western way of, of studying. Another was uh, a story about um uh, a white American guy who grew up in Sichuan, a province in China and was like ethnically well, or ethnically white, but um culturally Chinese. Right. And we're used to seeing that in reverse, but uh, not not that, that way around. And that got me really excited. You know, that's the kind of thing that you enjoy listening to. You can also watch stuff you've already seen before, like um, Friends or South Park or, you know, just like a show that, you know, that you know, uh, almost by memory. Just watch it again in a foreign language and like that will help you to learn that language. So second thing is finding awesome content. Uh, I, I read all of the Harry Potters in German, by the way, because I know the story so well that like even if I get lost by the by some words I don't know, like I can still kind of follow it. And I enjoy Harry Potter so much that I, I, I got my way through and I improved my German like that. Um, Yeah, and then the final uh, thing you need to do is vocab. Um, So vocab is kind of the backbone of your language learning. Um, You just need to learn words over time. Um, Write down the words that excite you. uh, Write down the words where you hear them a second or a third time. um, And uh, try and use a spaced repetition learning app. Spaced repetition learning is uh, basically the idea that um, every time that uh, that you review a word, it'll take you longer to forget it. So if you learn a word today, you should review it again in an hour, and then maybe eight hours, and then maybe one day, and then maybe three days, and maybe ten days, and maybe a month. And that's the most effective way of learning over time. Um, so every time that we, that we relearn something, it, our brains are like, hey, that's actually important, and they push it more and more to the long-term memory. And so if you want to increase your vocabulary over time, and you only want to spend, say, 10 minutes a day, then that's the most effective way of doing it. I can clearly see a parallel between
0: how you probably learned to cult and how you created iterations for new startup products and how you learn a language, right? (laughs) Really, like, step-by-step iterating your your Mm -hmm. approach. And during the workshop, you mentioned that you need a certain amount of words uh, to have, like, great conversations or, like, 15-minute conversations. But what do you say is the number of words you kind of need to know so you can have these conversations?
1: Mm. I mean... I I think you can have great conversations with a really small number of words. Um, You know, like, I I was in... uh, I was in Turkey for a wedding uh, this year, and I just wrote down, I think it was about 150 words and phrases in Turkish I wanted to learn. And... um, you know, it's like the basic stuff, like, hi, how are you? I'm from England. Uh, and then like, I-, I like weddings or like, um, are you drunk? Like, let's get a beer, <laughs> you know? so It wasn't really like a-, a deep conversation, but I was able to have a number of interactions with people. I was able to make people laugh and I was able to have a lot of fun having it. Um, So I think you can already exchange meaning and uh, communicate with a very small number of words. And then things just go up from there. So I, I, I think like there's a number like, Maybe five hundred words, you could mm-hmm. expect to have a basic conversation about a about a variety of stuff.
0: I found it fascinating. That was my main insight from the workshop that uh, when you think about learning a language, it sounds like this daunting task. <laughs> but when you think about learning one hundred fifty words, it's way more approachable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it should really be iterative. You know, I also see people who are like, who are um hunkering down and like studying by themselves for ages and they're mm-hmm. like no no i can't possibly try and speak spanish until i've learned this and this and this and actually um you know we're familiar from uh, with this from the world of startups but it's um you know it's get your product out there early mm-hmm. right as soon as you start learning start testing it yeah i think that's brilliant advice i
0: have really enjoyed this um conversation so far i've learned a lot around um yeah, being a founder, being a founder coach, traveling the world, learning languages. And at the Soul Kitchen, um, I always ask the guests a question, like, what's your, your recipe for life that you want to share with the <laughs> listeners? So based on all your life experiences, how would you define that recipe?
1: So for me, the, the piece of advice that I, I give myself is uh, enjoy the journey because all of these experiences that we've talked about today um, you know many of them are really incredible to me and I look back and I think wow like I can't believe that I, I went through all that and I, and I had had all of that happen in my life but a lot of the times I think I was um, I wasn't really present for them. I was like just kind of going through the motions uh, but I was thinking about the future I was thinking about the past. And uh, that's why the piece of advice I give myself is enjoy the journey. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, make sure that you take a step back, you look at yourself, you really appreciate where you are right now. Thank
0: you for that piece of um, advice. I think that's uh, that's a great one, especially when you also travel uh, a lot. Thank you, people, for listening. And um, yeah, thank you for your time, Ben. Thank you so much for having me.